And one of my friends who was in the September class was graduating. He had worked for a big law firm downtown Chicago. And, you know, he got into the interview process and just got too busy. So he told me, you know, I work, I clerk at this firm. I can't do it anymore. Could you just go over and tell them you're here for me and whatever I was doing, you'll do. So I went over and I walked into place and it was their insurance coverage department. I said, I'm here for Frank. He can't come anymore, but I'll be whatever he was doing, I'll do. And it worked out great. And that's how I got into it the insurance coverage end of it. That is crazy. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by Dale Diamond. Um, and Dale is the director of claims at Namco Insurance Company. Um, and, you know, Dale was an attorney by trade, for, for years and then went, moved over to claims. It just has like a very interesting career path and story. And frankly, it, you know, he and I end up talking shop about days and working at, you know, being an associate in a law firm and, you know, how that impacted us and the stressors that you had there. So, you know, I think anyone who's coming from that sort of background will really relate to, to some of the things that Dale and I have to talk about that. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Dale. Actually, good afternoon, Dale. How are you? Welcome to the Defense Never Rest. Good. I'm good. Good afternoon, Megan. Uh, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well. Um, it is spring break here in New Jersey, although my kids are not home today, so <laughs> I, I, I shipped them off for the day so I wouldn't be interrupted. <laughs> yeah, no, the spring break is um, kind of varies a little bit by schools, but um, there's a lot of folks down here in Florida. Uh, on spring break. So it picks up a little bit this time of year. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. So you are, I forgot that you're in, you're in sunny Florida where I think everybody I know is right now, (laughs) except me. So I'm sure you do have an influx of spring breakers down there right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's been nice weather. So, and I guess it's still a little bit cool back your way, cool and rainy from what I hear. Yeah. Yes. It's like 40 degrees out today. It's not, it's not super pleasant. Um, but you know, I'm so happy to have you join me this morning or this afternoon on, on this podcast. Like you and I had talked a few times leading up to this, um, you know, and I really just wanted to dive in a little bit to, to you, um, and, you know, tell your story a little bit and, you know, how you ended up where you are now, right now, you're the director of claims at NAMIC insurance company, but this is not where you started. You, you, you went to law school, you, you were an attorney. So I kind of want to hear about your path specifically right now, you know, everyone has a different story, how they ended up in law school. Um, so what was your process in deciding, you know, that was the career avenue you wanted to take? Well, I always, you know, going way back, I always had an interest in, in law and kind of that's the path I wanted to take. And then I went, I went to my last couple of years of undergrad out at UCLA in Los Angeles and had, um, a wonderful constitutional law professor named Dr. Hobbs. I think it was Dr. David Hobbs, if I remember right. And that kind of piqued my interest in going to law school. You know, unfortunately, um, you know, being one of five kids, when I got out with the cost of things, uh, there was no uh, money for law school at that time. So I knew if I wanted to go, I was going to have to get out and work. Um, So I worked in and always worked in sales and then um, in restaurant management and just kind of kept putting away the money. And I was out longer than I had planned. Uh, so I actually ended up uh, being out about seven years, if I remember right. And I'd kind of switch off from media sales 
um, and into restaurant management, but both were kind of great training and background to go to law school. So by the time I could go, by then I was living in Chicago as general manager of a, a seafood restaurant uh, in Evanston, Illinois, and kind of uh, putting away my money and, and trying to save up enough for law school. Um, and finally in, in um, January, uh, 1991, um, started law school in downtown Chicago. So did you find, you know, going to law school after you've, one, you've saved for it yourself uh, and doing, you know, having another career path before, and did it make you more focused and more serious when, when you actually started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the maturity was better. A few things happened. One, I was really lucky. Um, You know, I was paying cash for law school. Um, uh, from what I had saved, but I was very lucky because I went to the John Marshall Law School, which is now part of the University of Illinois Chicago um, Law School just recently. They became affiliated, um, but at the time it was John Marshall, and I did get a uh, half scholarship, so they picked up half the tuition, and I think that was based on my background, um, having uh, not gone directly to law school, but having kind of a different um, background, so that that helped a lot, and uh, like you said, Megan, the fact that, you know, I really worked, I put in uh, 80, 90, 100 hours a week in that restaurant. Um, and if I was, that money was going into law school, I was not going to waste it. So, you know, I did not miss class. Um, it was what I did. I took it real seriously. Yeah. I mean, I found that I took some time in between undergrad and law school too. And I, I did feel like I, I had a little bit more focus going in like it wasn't just a continuation of of college to, to me which I think that that mentality I think happens when you go straight in because you're like oh I don't know what else to do I mean I admittedly went to law school because I didn't know what else to do and I knew I needed to do something um, but I definitely was a little more focused I think that some of my my classmates who went straight through did you have that like similar um, experience yeah, I did. It, there was a group yeah. of us that I kind of, um, we sort of banded together. Some of us, my best friend in law school was a CPA who had worked long and hard and just found that a little boring and decided he wanted to go back to law school. So the group of us who had worked <laughs> um, real hard. It was interesting because, um, you know, as you know, they, they do the Socratic method. So, you know, uh, first day, um, some of the professors did some intro, but I'll never forget our, our property professor said, well, you've heard the intros we're going to get started. And he just looked at, looked me right in the eye, called me. So I was first one up, um, <laughs> first day. Uh, and then after that, um, I was called on three more times uh, in the other three classes. And I did, by the time I was graduating, I asked Professor Carr, you know, you know, what was up with that? And he said, um, yeah, that was not, that was done on purpose just because of being older and having a background, you know, in sales and, marketing and and management um they thought that uh you know i I would probably do pretty well so he said he he told me he said you didn't think that scholarship was free (laughs) (laughs) but it was a great experience i really enjoyed law school yeah see i was always terrified about the socratic method like i and it wasn't like i went to class unprepared i was just Mm -hmm. terrified of getting called on and saying the wrong thing or you know it, it was i it, it was scary for me. And eventually, you know, it got easier, but I remember that first year, I was like, please don't call on me. <laughs> like, I think that's how we all were. <laughs> um, so you go, you go through law school though. And, you know, what was your, you know, idea for next steps at when you graduated? 
I was really, um, I, I liked it all, you know, in, in from, uh, you know, from the family law classes to, um, you know, my labor and employment, which was kind of my focus. Um, there are certain things I, I knew, even though I liked them, I probably didn't want to go there career-wise. Uh, criminal, probably something I, I didn't want to do. Um, so I really thought that I wanted to um, be involved in, in labor and employment. Uh, but when I got out, it was just kind of um, happenstance that I ended up on the insurance end of things. Um, a friend of mine, we were um, January class, so there was a small group of us who started January. And one of my friends who was in the September class was graduating. He had worked for a big law firm downtown Chicago. And, you know, he got into the interview process and just got too busy. So he told me, you know, I work, I clerk at this firm. I can't do it anymore. Could you just go over and tell him you're here for me and whatever I was doing, you'll do. So I went over and I walked into place and it was their insurance coverage department. I said, I'm here for Frank. He can't come anymore, but I'll be Whatever he was doing, I'll do. And it worked out great. And that's how I got into it the insurance coverage end of it. That is crazy. I've never, <laughs> it's, it reminds me of like, you know, the movie Step Brothers where they go on the interview together. It's almost like that. Like, well, we're a pair, so I can't come today. So Dale's going to oh, take, yeah. take it for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. what did they say? Like, were they like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> they were said, okay, great. It was funny because it was at the time there was just a ton of work going on on, um, the asbestos litigation with all the Chicago public schools with the asbestos in the buildings. And then all of a sudden accidental, there was a big case involving Waukegan Harbor, North Chicago, where they had been dumping PCBs in the Harbor and they were all in, in that. So they just needed someone to, you know, do the, do the research, do the case citation. I had been on law review, so I knew how to, you know, yeah. do briefs and edit and do case citation. And they were happy as can be. And just, you know, thank goodness there wasn't cell phones back then. Yeah. because they were relentless and I just spent more time started spending more time over there than at school so and and it was funny because um with the mostly the associates I worked with over there they got very possessive of me so they would actually kind of fight over who got my time and uh it was it was uh pretty funny uh to be over there but you know at the end of the day after all that worked the way things worked I wasn't one of their summer associates so didn't get the offer there okay. but I did end up I did end up at a firm that had fairly recently split off from that firm. So, you know, they knew of the firm. So um, that uh, kind of launched me into insurance. And, and when I did interview when I was graduating um, with uh, uh, a guy who I still kind of uh, keep in contact with uh, via LinkedIn, he's still working. Um, and uh, I'll never forget the interview with him. He was the name partner and, and his interview was, uh, I hear you do insurance coverage work. And I said, Yes, I, I do insurance firms work. And he said, do you like it? And I said, yeah, I like it. And he said, are you crazy? And I said, I don't think so. And I got the job. So that was my interview. Well, that's every crazy person's response. No, I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, no they, were all, they were all pretty crazy over there, um, but had a, so, a ton of work. And then it was, you know, just diving right into it. Um, they was a group of like four or five partners. I don't think any of the associates wanted to do coverage work. And, you know, I was trying to study for the bar and mm -hmm. they just kept piling the work on. Um, and uh, I remember saying, um, you know, this is great, but I need a little time to study for the bar. And one of them looks at them and says, do you think we picked the right guy? 
<laughs> that was, you know, that was my experience in the, uh, in the, into the law firm. So, um, and so did you stay in the, in the coverage space while, while you're practicing? I did. I was in, um, coverage. We had a lot of, um, I did a lot of bad faith litigation. So a, a lot of things, the thing that Megan, that was really interesting was, um, kind of the mistakes and the, the messes some of these insurance companies had made of these claims. Um, that didn't have to be that way. So we did a lot of bad faith litigation and tried to really, uh, the best that we could uh, resolve problems and, and uh, limit the damage to these insurers. But there was only so much you could do at this stage that you got the, the facts and you know the litigation in. Yeah. Um, so I just thought eventually I could probably be uh, of more value actually at the insurer before things went the wrong, you know, went, went downhill, uh, quick. So, um, after about six years, you know, I decided to go in-house via the claims route at the carrier. Now, did you find, and I'm just curious before you decided to leave, were, was there pressure from some of the partners to like bring in clients or, you know, in order to be on like a partner type track, or was it just, you know, you were just putting your head down and doing the work? Uh, there was pressure um, at the, from the firm was about 85 lawyers um, and a really good friend of mine still there. I still work with them. Um, it was a good firm, but it was really, really tough. Um, and there's limited amount of clients when you're in the insurance end of it, you know, all the big ones and they had worked yeah. with everybody. They had been around a long time, but they have, uh, I'll just give you an example. We used to go on like a dinner cruise on Lake Michigan with all our clients. And um, uh, you know, you're supposed to, it was really meant to meet, greet the clients and establish, you know, work with the relationships, but um, the partners really didn't like you talking too much to their client, <laughs> but then you weren't really supposed to just as associates hang out in a group and talk with each other. They'd say, you know, that's not why we had you here. So it was really a no win situation. I used to say, you know, I tell the other ones, you know, I just felt like jumping off the boat and swimming to shore because anything I did was going to get me in trouble. That's why they do a dinner cruise too. So you can't leave. <laughs> exactly. Like, They're not knowing what to do. You end up just kind of going off in the corner by yourself because yeah. it was really, you know, you get that eagle eye if you were talking to someone who was, you know, uh, a big client of one of the partners. So not a whole lot you could do that was the right thing. Yeah, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like that's, yeah. I mean, and I'd been in scenarios like similar to that. Actually on dinner cruises, I, they, I, I swear it's like the, the thing you do to trap the clients and the associates yeah. but I remember so much that that pull like oh I can't mm -hmm. like I'd rather just talk to you know Sally who has an office next to mine and chat about whatever but we're not supposed to talk to Sally so I gotta talk to client Greg but not too much like it, it, yeah. it's it's hard you know but and it's not like you're gonna it, say you you have a really great conversation with you know Greg it's not like if Greg Greg sends you work you're probably we're probably not going to get credit for it anyway you know <laughs> so. yeah exactly you know you don't if it's like existing um yeah you know unless uh, somehow you had some family connection or something it was going to be a, a tough tough road um to the partnership track yeah and something that comes up a lot i i find on this podcast a lot of people talk about is you know did, and i'm wondering if you had had this experience like the higher up partners was there anyone like explaining to you like how to go about marketing and networking 
Um, Cause I felt like I didn't have that, that guidance. I was just told, Oh, you have a, you know, you're outgoing and you, you should market. But I had the faintest idea of what that really meant. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and it, you know, it's, it was a good firm, but the firm, I just don't think it's their strength. Everyone's so busy and, and doing their, their thing and there wasn't really a plan. So they kind of, it was more a, a sink or swim. They kind of throw you in and, and a lot of the, uh, associates who came straight out of school um, struggled a little bit. I mean, the main thing I had going at the school I was at being downtown, you know, we knew our way by the time we got to the firm, having clerk, uh, you know, I knew my way around the courthouse and I knew the, the judges and I knew the clerk. So, you know, what we really were best at was going over and doing motion practice and, and filing things and doing easy motions, maybe arguing a few simple ones, especially the ones that were going to be losers. They'd send us over to, you know, <laughs> to go get beat up. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's what they really liked. And now there wasn't a whole lot on marketing and there wasn't really a lot explained about the whole partnership process. It was just, yeah. you know, if you put in a, a lot of hours and you can bring in some business, you'll probably do okay. The people that really did, better were um, when they hired laterals um, it seemed like they had more success they could come in um, and hit the ground running and they could actually sometimes bring some business with them from their other firm so they really had a leg up on, on the people that um, were hired right out of school yeah yeah um, and and that's hard too though because it's like you, you could see something bring over a lateral maybe some business you're like okay well that's great like but how do I get there? You know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, so you eventually decided to leave and you went, you went in-house to, to an insurance company, right? Yeah. And, so, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, uh, we were just at some point you're seeing what else is out there. You know, my wife is in the business too, and she had gone to the claim side. She had a really very practice. She had done all kinds of different things. Um, but when we had we had kids and small kids and and you know the hours were pretty grinding so we both she went claim side first and said hey this is pretty pretty good life you're still doing the legal work you know and and it's a challenging but you know instead of doing the work all weekend you're you know giving the work to the law firms and just supervising so at that yeah. point I decided to um, uh, make that move and the companies. Uh, especially around, you know, Chicago, there are a lot downtown Chicago, we're really uh, looking for claims help at the law firms and looking for um, associates with that, you know, three to five, six years experience who could come in and, and um, handle a pending a claim file. Um, so did you have a hard time though with, I mean, on paper, yes, the transition sounds great. Like, okay, we have young kids, you know, you lose the billable hour, but I've heard a lot from people who've made that jump. Like that transition can still be difficult because you're going from, you know, billing, 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 where you can, you know, you're an income maker and your, your worth each day is like, oh, well, I, I put eight on the board. I put nine on the board. And now, now you have to shift your focus away from that. And I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, they, as awesome as it is, they struggled with it. Yeah. A lot of people struggled. My transition was, was pretty good just with, you know, when they used to do a lot of these Myers-Briggs and personality tests to see what you did, but where I went at the time was courageous and it was um, lawyers, male practice claims, and they were the bar sponsored carry in places like Pennsylvania and in Ohio and Michigan and, um, uh, you know, they basically wrote a lot of the solos 
small firms, a lot on the plaintiff side, and the claims were just coming in and coming in. Uh, so you did get a huge pending. But the way I always worked, it was kind of bottom line. I could go through the file. Uh, and what I like to do is resolve them. So I would do a lot of mediations. I would do a lot of, um, you know, just directing counsel to get these things wrapped up. So uh, quickly I got in that groove of just closing files. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a lot of people really struggled if they were really into the details. Um, so I got into that pretty quickly and was supervising a team pretty quickly. Most of the people who came from firms and you had to some, work with the attorneys a lot to say, hey, you know, you're making the call on whether the attorney should file a motion for summary judgment. Not you don't want to be reading over their motion for summary judgment and, and red penning it. That's not what that's not what we do here. You've got 200 files. Um, so some people did struggle and you'd see some who would go back into practice, say, you know what, this just isn't for me. But pretty quickly, I thought, you know, this is more kind of more what I like to do. Um, so I became comfortable with that pretty fast. Um, so, I know, you know, during your time doing that, was there any aspects of like, or when you're suddenly managing out, outside counsel and dealing with outside counsel, were there things that like stuck out to you that you're like, oh, I, I, I used to do that. And now like, I realize, like, I shouldn't have done that. Like that drives me crazy or, or something. Did you pick up on anything like that? Yeah. Well, we knew, you know, coming out of practice, um, you know, it depends how aggressive some of these firms are. I mean, I did, uh, we knew, uh, you know, you know, it wasn't said that when you get a file in at the firm, you know, you didn't really want to resolve it too quickly. Um, you know, and it was a little different at the, at the carrier, you know, they thought, Hey, if you can get it done in 12 months. So there's, there's that, even though you want to partner with your counsel, there is that tension of, you know, there's different goals here. Mm-hmm. Um, of course the firm wants to bill and, and needs to, to make their money. Um, uh, and the company's got these files, especially where we were coming in so fast, they need to turn them, um, even if. Uh, you know, even if something's maybe more defensible, it's like, yeah, but we always said, you know, a closed file is a happy file. So there was always that tension of trying to get on the same page with your counsel to get the best resolution when our goals were a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and I, I hear that, like the, um, that comment about, you know, the attorneys feeling like they need to bill rather than getting rid of files so often. And I feel like it's so misconce, like it's such a misconception because get rid of the file, you get rid of the file and then don't build very much on it. And then maybe you'll get another one. Exactly. <laughs> like, That's how, it, or yeah. do you feel that like that you're in that not confident in yourself that you're not, you know, do a good job. Yeah. That's how it should be. It's hard. It depends how the claim department set up. Cause yeah. some claim departments, like when I worked, and um, for, say, example, the, the Pennsylvania bar, I mean, I had just so many files out of Philadelphia, so many out of Pittsburgh, I could feed a firm all day long. And so that's exactly what we did. You know, I'd say, we got to handle these efficiently. You know, I need you to make the call within 12 months. Is this something we can try? Is this something that needs to be resolved? As we get into discovery, is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better for us? And I said, you know, if we're efficient, if you're upfront with me, they'll just keep coming. And eventually you're going to get that file that for whatever reason, you've got an unreasonable plaintiff or whatever it is, we're going to have to take it the whole way and you're going to build plenty. Um, but just, you know, work with me on this. Uh, right. It's harder. Some of the claim departments are 
set up where, you know, my claims could come from anywhere in, in the, you know, in the country. And maybe I'm working with a firm one time. They don't know who I am. All of a sudden they get this random file because I was looking for somebody, you know, in, you know, Spokane, Washington on a one time. And then it's a little different. You can't say, you know, let's get this done. And, you know, and it depends on the firm. Some of the, I know that you can just tell some of the firms there's, um, the practice is set up where, you know, the file comes in and you do your motion to dismiss, maybe one or two of this dismissal without prejudice. You, you do the written discovery, you take some depths, um, you do your motion for summary judgment, whether there's fact questions or not, you know, it's just like, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to that point where you've done all that, then it's time to talk settlement. But I'm trying to talk settlement. You know, I look at the complaint, you know, uh, look over the facts, get the file materials i'm like oh you know this is bad um and um you're trying to get it settled so sometimes there'd be a little push and pull to, yeah. you know i used to say tell the claim teams i said these files just think of your files like you know uh fish it's you know it hits your desk if it smells a little right now you need to get rid of it because it's just going to get worse so you yeah. have to be able to pick out the bad ones and you have to work with your counsel um because those bad ones just would, the more you dug in, um, they keep getting worse. So it's hard for some people to make that early call. You know, they want to dig into every fact and try everything. And, um, but uh, somehow it's, you know, how they can, that way they can get out of control. Uh, and that's when you start hearing from the, you know, the bosses. It's like, what, what happened here? <laughs> you, know, you spent $250,000 and now you got to tell me we have to settle for the million. Uh, yeah. Couldn't we have done this? earlier so but it's yes. tough and it's challenging i'd always tell folks handling claims that you know just get used to the fact that whatever you do is not going to be right that's just <laughs> the nature of the claims business if you know you set your reserve too low and you have to settle for more that's obviously a problem you know now you've under reserved it and you've messed up the actuaries and the underwriters um now, if you set it too high, you think, well, I, you know, I had it reserved at 600 and I sold for 400. I should be a hero. It's like, no, you over-reserved, <laughs> you know, and you messed up the x-rays and the underwriters. And then, you know, if you reserved it at 500 and sell for 500, it's like, oh, well, you just went to the mediation and, and threw your reserve at them, you know, <laughs> and got it. Done. So it's like, you know what, whatever you do is not going to be correct. So, you know, just yeah. have thick skin. I know, but it, that is hard though. To, it's like a hard idea to, to come around to because, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, and I think you and I had talked about this before, but you, so you, you were worked for a long time at, at a larger insurance company. And then I think you, you, re, you retired for a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, well, what happened, my career path was interesting. It was really good because um, I was, uh, came through the claims end uh, and, and handled claims and did claims management and um, eventually went back to um, handling claims. I remember interviewing, um, I, I did, went one year to a dot-com back in those days. So I was out, but I always thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go back and, and just handle a claims desk because, you know, there's always there's always availability there. Uh, and I remember I went to a, a company that was as close to my house. Um, it's called Shan Morhan. It's, uh, now it's uh, just part of Martell Corporation, which is a big company, a great company. And they, um, 
I remember interviewing and uh, they kept saying, you know, it's not management, it's just a desk. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I really <laughs> like working my desk. So I did that for three years and that was where I really handled a lot of the employment practice um, cases, which are really interesting and, and very challenging just because of the dynamics. And, um, you know, you get a lot of uh, personal feelings in into it. And so you have to convince people to kind of put that aside um, you know, all that personal animus and, and get the thing resolved. So that was a whole new challenge. Um, but I did that for three years and then um, was perfectly happy, but was kind of called uh, uh, between our head of claims and our head of underwriting. Uh, they had a position that they were filling to be a, a product line lead. So it was on the underwriting side, which I hadn't done. Um, but it was really just to keep the product line profitable. Their big problem was, you know, handling the EPL claims and, and making sure they're profitable in California, where it was really tough. So they were struggling. So um, I met with the head of underwriting and, and made a jump to the underwriting side. And my thought really was, you know, well, um, I like claims because, you know, my background's legal and this lets me use my legal training. And that's getting farther away from what I went to law school for. Um, but when I got in, it was uh, nice to do something different, um, and it went really well. Uh, we were very successful. Um, it was also, you know, more lucrative than claims um, to be on the underwriting side for sure. Um, so I did that for three years, and then all with, you know, with the same company. And then they moved me again into this regional management uh, position, managing um, a group of 25 underwriters. And handling all their East Coast business, so it was you know 140 million dollars worth of business that was very profitable. And just working with your brokers and product line leaders, you're kind of a, just a referee. But it kept moving me farther from the uh, you know the legal end of it, more into marketing and people management and you know uh, those type of things. Um, but it was interesting. So I. It, it, the nice part was to keep doing something different and learning the whole business as opposed yeah. to just being focused on the claims end. So that was kind of my progression um, through the insurance world. And, you know, when you moving into that role, did you have like a greater appreciation as to how like everything worked? Cause you're seeing, you know, multiple sides of it. Yeah, exactly. It was really good to know the whole, uh, the whole process. And I think, that's one reason they moved me over is because I understood claims. A lot of times there's issues of communication between the claims team and the underwriting side and the actuaries. Um, and claims sometimes can be sort of forgotten about. You know, we even the place I was, we were, you know, on a different floor and we were locked behind a door. And um, so part of what I did was just try to um, improve the communication between the claims team and, and underwriting and, and, um, the actuarial side, because we all do work together. I always said it's kind of like, you know, moving gears um, between claims and actuary and, and um, underwriting and marketing. And if one of those gears is out of whack, um, you know, the whole thing kind of goes off. And claims is so important because uh, they set the reserves. And if you're not setting reserve right, you know, you're not pricing right, you're not um, uh, putting up aside enough money to pay your claims and it can really, um, you know, take you down a bad, a bad path. And, and, you know, that's how a lot of companies become insolvent. It starts with poor claims handling. Yeah. And, and I think that's definitely 
you know, something that might be is kind of lost on, on one end, especially I think with attorneys, you know, that when they're reporting to their claims adjusters and, you know, giving a settlement range or whatever, a lot of them don't understand the, the domino effect of, of that report and how it affects not claims, but over on the underwriting side. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, I think there should be more communication and more understanding about how, um, what claims is doing uh, affects what else is going on in the company. Um, there's one company I was at where we did have the meetings. I was on the claim side and you'd meet with actuary and underwriting and we were handling lawyers, a lawyer's book of business. And, um, you know, it would start out with, with actuary. They always started a meeting and they'd say, we need to um, increase the rates. We're just not getting enough premium to handle the, the losses. Um, and, and then underwriting would say, well, you know, we can't, we won't be competitive. If we um, increase the premiums, we're only going to write the worst of the worst and the situation is just going to get worse. And, you know, they'd say well, the problem is that claims is over-reserving. That's why you think we need, you know, more premium. It's probably not as bad as you think. And then we'd say, you know, we're not over-reserving. We're giving accurate reserves to actuary and, you know, and then they're doing, so it was kind of like, you know, finger pointing, we just go around in that circle and it was really hard to figure out, you know, what to do uh, because everyone had their own interest in, in uh, trying to keep their part of the operation viable, uh, but they didn't, sometimes didn't go together. So it's really, it can be, the big challenge is getting in sync um, yeah. where sure. you've just got to balance where you're pricing right, you're handling your claims well, you're reserving right, and then actuary can, can come up um, with the pricing, you know, the underwriting needs to stay profitable. Yeah. So, you know, tell me though about a little bit about your, how, how you ended up at, at NAMIC. Um, Cause you did take some time and then I think they like lure you back and you're like, Dale, we need you. <laughs> well, they, um, you know, I, I uh, the company I was at, Markel, um, eventually reorged and reorged are tough. I mean, it's such a great company. When they came, they said, no, nah, you know, we were in Chicago. We loved it. We loved working for Shand, uh, Morhan it was at the time. And we were our own little, even though we were part of this big company, we were our own little world. So it was the best of both worlds. And I remember um, when they came and said, we're going to just change up everything. We all felt like that in the pit of our stomach. We're like, you know, what does this mean? So for me, they wanted me um, to go out to New Jersey because I handled East Coast business. So you know, if you've ever, uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend moving teenagers, um, you know, to a different state. It was not no. not pleasant, but the company had been great to me, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, those kids wanted to go to college too one day. So um, it's like, you know what, we're going. And I went out there for three years, and re but the reorgs are real hard. And they, I mean, they came out fine, but it was a rough time for the company. And so I ended up leaving and joining... Um, uh, company that was another large company, you know, WR Berkeley, but they were, what they do is they have a bunch of subsidiaries, like yeah. 50 or so, and they were starting um, a company and the, the, I knew the person was starting it. Um, so uh, it was a startup, but with, you know, a lot of backing. And that was interesting. It was just such a good experience too, because it was building a product from nothing. I had always taken over nice, healthy books of business, you know, at 40 million or 140 million. This was zero. So they had tried to write professional liability business and just had no luck. 
So they brought me in and um, I was there nine years. It was great. I had a great team. We all stayed together for about eight of those years and um, uh, built that book from zero to ended up writing, you know, more than a hundred million, very profitably uh, in a tough market. So, um, you know, we took a lot of pride in what we did and uh, they moved me out. I ended up out in the satellite office in Denver, which was uh, another, you know, another move. And, um, but uh, we liked it out there and, uh, but eventually, you know, that the person I worked for retired and, and um, it was time to do something else and time to move uh, down to Florida. My son's here and, you know, we're getting older. We wanted to go to Florida. And so once my wife could work remote with the pandemic and all that, yeah, we decided to move. Um, yeah, but I knew I wasn't uh, ready to retire. I didn't necessarily want to put in the 80 hours or 90 hour weeks or travel constantly anymore, but I wanted to stay um you know, uh, stay in the business. So yeah, I was looking in claims or under underwriting, but I really felt like that pullback to claims because, you know, I, st- I missed the legal aspect of it. And it is really what, of all the things I did in insurance, it's pretty much what I enjoyed the most uh, was those handling those claims, doing the mediation, working with my counsel. So I was hoping to be able to get um, back into that. But, you know, as you get older, it's a little, it's a little tough. So it took a while. And I I sent out probably about 200 resumes, um, got a few interviews, um, and some, some were tough. I mean, the interviews, I, my background really wasn't on the medical claim side. So I did those interviews, but, you know, I can see, you know, there's stronger people out there on medical. Um, but I did get the one offer, which was from Namico, which again, is something it's different because they're an association, um, you know, Namics, the association of mutual insurance companies, and they've been around since the late 1800s. So uh, the company I work for is actually owned by the association members um, and they have their board. So it's different from working for these big, you know, uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, Sure. It's a great group of people. And and, uh, I was doing it part time and really enjoying being back on the claim side. And then um, there were some changes there. My boss was head of claims became president. Um, The other under I was the other claims person I was working with ended up leaving at the same time. So uh, it was just me. And, and my boss said, can you, you know, stay and be our director of claims? I know you, you know, the plan wasn't to work a full-time job again, but they're just such a good group. And, you know, she's uh, such a good person and the whole management team uh, was great. So uh, I told her I, I wouldn't do this probably for anybody else, but, you know, um, in this situation, uh, I'd be glad to do it. So it was definitely, definitely challenging um, to try and do that on my own, you know. Now, how, how is it, um, sorry, there's someone just pulled in my driveway and I'm oh. like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing? Not expecting uh, company. No, it, it's, it's the propane guy. He's dropping off the propane tanks. <laughs> oh. um, how, it, how is the dynamic though different, different, uh, at where you are now compared to Markel or some of the larger insurance companies. Cause as you said, it's like, it's different. Like you're, it's, you know, it's a trade organization that the, the insurance company is part of the trade organization and there's a board. So, you know, how is the dynamic a little bit different? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it, it is different because um, our insureds um, are uh, also our members. So, you know, we have to be careful. We can't give coverage where there's not coverage, but there's definitely, um, we're not denying coverage as often. That's, that's for sure. And we do have to remember that, um, 
these are when the claims come in that um, you know uh, these are not only our insureds but they are members of the association uh, and you know the board who um, you know I kind of answer to we talk about claims is a uh, they're also association members so uh, there's not that focus even though we want to make an underwriting profit, you're not focused on, you know, the shareholders. You're more focused on your, uh, you know, association members, these folks who uh, work these mutual companies. It's also because they are mutuals. We're working, we do insurance company, professional liability and agency, you know, and some EPLI, but you're working a lot of times with um, smaller companies, either a small mutual or an agent, uh, a lot of rural. Um, yeah. We do a lot of, um, uh, like farm policies. Uh, we do a lot of crop type business. Uh, and you may be working in um, more rural jurisdictions, which is interesting. You yeah. have to make that call. Do I try and find, you know, a local attorney somewhere, you know, out in Eastern Kentucky, or do I go to Louisville and just yeah. go with one of the firms? Because you know, I haven't practiced myself, even around Chicago, sometimes when you went out into the collar counties, you know, you were the Chicago attorney, you know, and, and you weren't part of that club. And sometimes, yeah. you know, things didn't go that well for you uh, going up against a plaintiff who was part of the local community. Mm -hmm. So those are the type of decisions that are a little bit different. You know, when, when I was at uh, the bigger companies, we just had, like in Philadelphia, we had our five firms and that's who we used. Um, and we were mostly either in the federal courts in the Eastern District of Philadelphia, or you'd be in state court in Philadelphia or Montgomery County, or um, here you're just, you could be anywhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're up in North Dakota and, and oh, yeah. Northern Minnesota. And so it's very different. It's a different challenge um, and a different level of sophistication sometimes um, for a small insurance company where, you know, when, when you're working with some of these big law firms, we insured, um, uh, you know, the claim's not fun for anyone, but for some of these smaller mutual companies or a small agent, you know, it could literally put them out of business yeah. and it's very personal. Um, so you have to be a, aware of that. Uh, and also um, when someone's from a smaller community, you know, it may, um, you know, be the talk of the town that this happened, that, you know, the client of the insurance agent was not happy and they're going to court, which is kind of a big deal. So you're dealing with, um, uh, personal. It's not just business. It can be very uh, personal between the parties involved. And sure. so you just want to be um, cognizant of that when you're trying to get things resolved. Yeah. And like, like when you mentioned, like, you know, having, you know, a claim in North Dakota and it, like even just trying to find counsel wherever you are there, because I mean, it's a, it's a large state, but not very populated and you probably don't know many people there, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then have then that same impact of it being, you know, close to home and people might be talking about it and you don't, you don't want to reach too far out of where you are that, cause it could negatively affect that, that claim. And you don't want that either. Exactly. And, and, um, you know, the tendency was, uh, especially when you're really busy is, um, and some of these, especially the insurance company, professional liability, some of them have larger deductibles, uh, just to go with, um, the suggestion of your insured. Sometimes that works out fine, but sometimes that can really be a nightmare. It could be someone that um, you know may may not have that experience or may also be personally 
involved. Um, sometimes they're even, you know, uh, are probably conflicted out. They'll say, oh, well, my attorney's handling this. And it's like, well, your attorney was part of the decision process. If say it's an, it's an EPL, it's like, yeah. well, who did you, who advised you to fire the person? And you're like, oh, my attorney. Oh, the attorney is now defending you. Like, well, no, that's not going to work. Um, and it's hard to explain that sometimes that uh, they can't use their personal attorney. Yeah. And especially because a lot of people might use their personal attorney for everything. And it's not like it's their friend yeah. and they trust them. And, exactly. You know, now you're like, well, no, now you got to use Mary. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or send a Mary over to help you. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough, but they're, with their friends too, sometimes just being friends, um, uh, you know, even with a good legal background, it's hard for them to be objective. And we really need someone to look at the facts objectively and um, you know, you, they'll jump in and say, no, they, you know, he didn't do it. And this is defensible and, you know, we'll take it all the way to trial. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, I'm not seeing this the same way. And, and we need someone who's going to take an objective look at the case and, and do what's best, you know, not only for the insured, um, you know, but for, for us as well. Um, because as you know, these things, once they kind of get off on the wrong foot, um, even the smallest dispute, can end up turning into kind of a rather large nightmare. Yeah. So one thing that you and I had talked about when we talked on the on the phone, I guess a few weeks ago at this point, is some of your pain points. You know, and now so now that you're in the position of you know being the director of claims and you you have to manage you know counsel all over. We I mean we just talked about it. I mean, what are some of the some of your daily pain points in, that you see in your position? Um, a few things that are tough. One, with professional liability, because you're talking about people's professional um, reputations and things, we do have the consent to settle policy, and you really need written consent. And so that can, that can always be difficult, um, where, uh, you know, you, you've got everything set up, the plaintiff's being reasonable, you know, your defense counsel's put you in a good spot, and you're ready to get the thing wrapped up. And maybe it's, you know, a little more than you think you should pay. And the plaintiff thinks it's a little less than they should take. And uh, everything set except your insured saying, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to consent to this settlement. I, I, you know, I don't think we should pay anything. I didn't do anything wrong. So that can be difficult. And usually insureds come around. I used to, you know, when we were doing a, a mediation in person, you know, that was sometimes a bigger challenge was getting my insured on board and getting that written consent. And um, like I was telling someone the other day, I, you know, a lot of times I did it, I just come in the night before and, you know, we'd go to dinner and, you know, buy a mistake and a glass of wine and just sit and talk about it and say, you know, think about this. This could be a problem, especially on something like an EPLI. You know, you don't want the papers to pick this up. And, you know, the whole story, juries are unpredictable. I get it. I'm sympathetic. I think you do have a good case, but, um, you know, we don't know what a jury's going to do you know, who's going to be the foreman or four person, you know, um, it's just, you want the certainty of the settlement. And of course the settlement, you're not admitting anything. In fact, you're saying we're, you know, we didn't do anything wrong, but we're settling it to, you know, to end the litigation. So usually you could get it um, very few times where I found someone really dug in and said, you know, nope, I'm not going to agree to any settlement. Uh, but that can be difficult. Did you ever, and I have to ask, so did you ever have that scenario that you, you know, you go out to dinner with the insured and you, you, you have this great conversation, you get them on board and then you go to mediation the next day and they're like, 
never mind. <laughs> never mind everything we talked about last night, Dale. I'm not settling this claim. <laughs> when the wine, when the wine wears off. Yeah. No, I, was, I was lucky. Um, I was lucky. Almost every time they stuck with the program once we, once we got them. And then, um, uh, you know, um, we were able to get most of these, most times, uh, things did resolve. Um, it takes, you know, it's a long day and it's painful and everyone's got to do the dance and, but at the end of the day, they go away. I had one the other day where my insurer did say he had to go to the CEO and he said, you know, for the final approval, and we had been meeting all day and he said, all right, I got approved. He said, I blamed you. He said, I told him I didn't want to settle. I don't think we should settle. But the guy from the company, the guy from the insurance company, you know, making me do this. And I said, that's fine. You can blame yeah. me all day long. So Absolutely. That I- works. I tell my kids that all the time. If you don't want to do something, just just say my mom won't let me. <laughs> exactly. Like, you throw me under the bus. It's okay. I can handle it. Yeah, it's it the done. same process. It's like the mean the mean insurance guys telling me, yeah, I have to settle. So um, whatever long, works. Yeah, as long as they don't say it, and then it's like, well, I didn't really agree to the settlement. <laughs> it's not a mutual was, agreement of the minds. It was funny. He was joking, um, and we we're having a good time. But um, he was a little nervous making that call back to his CEO because it was, you know, very personal. They didn't think they did anything wrong, and you know, you can tell them well, you're not admitting you did anything wrong, but they think you know, paying the money um, is an admission, and we tell them yes. it's not. It's to resolve litigation it's not you're not admitting anything so um yeah that's just a uh tough but then you know when it gets settled and and um you know everything's done and uh they don't have to worry about it anymore then they do have that relief that they don't have this litigation hanging over the company i i do feel though i i i see that a lot though when it's you know the way litigation impacts a company i think us who work in this so often, we, we sometimes lose sight at the personal attack that some companies feel when they get sued. Um, like I just had it the other day, I was talking to, to an insured on the phone and we were talking about a claim and they got so angry about the, the allegations that were being asserted against them and the getting really lost in, in the weeds. I was like, look, I understand like, this is not, it, it, it's not pleasing. You don't want to get sued but we're, we're handling it, but don't get lost in the forest about what they're looking for. And like, like this insurer was going every allegation. He was like, well, I don't understand why he's saying that. Like, that's for me to worry about, but it's, you forget that this really impacts, you know, them to their core, you know, and it it can affect how they operate their business and they feel sometimes personally attacked. Yeah, that's true. Especially in professional liability, because it is an attack on their professional um, reputation uh, you know, sure. so handling, you know, the, the law firm malpractice, um, uh, those who are really tough on the firms. Um, and, you know, it's really important, the confidentiality and, and getting things resolved. And they were, did have this kind of tug of war between, you know, wanting to defend themselves and prove, uh, you know, that they didn't do anything wrong and just wanting the whole thing to be resolved and, and behind them so they could go on with their business. So yeah. uh, you kind of have to walk them through that, um, that whole process. And some things, even the law firms don't, you know, think about, but certainly the non-legal professionals, you know, when the depositions start getting noticed up, you know, you're going to have to, um, you know, start uh, preparing and presenting your employees for deposition and, and it's disruptive of your business probably not something you want your employees to be 
subjected to. So there's a lot of benefits of making it go away as, as bad as that can feel sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I also find like, you know, maybe not so much when you're dealing with malpractice for law firms, but, you know, when they're unfamiliar with the litigation process, it can feel so overwhelming. Um and, and just the steps of the process. Well, like, why do we have to do this now? Why do we have to do this? And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I've, I have this conversation a lot when I have witnesses come for depositions and they're like, okay, well, am I done? I was like, well, probably, but maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, hopefully you yeah. never have to hear from me again, but don't lose my number just yet. You might hear from exactly. me again. <laughs> yeah, when you close, when your eyes close and that, you know, it's over, but it's maybe not over, so. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a educational process for them, but it's a real uh, wake up call too. And and just the worry about, um, you know, the threat of litigation, I think our insureds know how litigious things have become, how expensive it's become. We hear a lot about the social inflation. Um, that I'm getting more calls, even like pre-claim about you know, we get the ones, this happens, is this going to be a problem, you know, and it's hard to predict. They sometimes have limited facts where they want you to kind of make them feel better. It's like, well, we did this, we haven't heard anything yet, but we're worried. Or even before anything happened, it's like, well, how do we, you know, uh, there's more about uh, risk management and preventing these claims in the first place. And a lot of questions about, you know, they'll actually surprise, you know, read the policy and then start calling up, well, the policy says this, you know, what is that what does that mean? I, mean, I had one the other day, um, there's a lot of talk up in everywhere, but up in New York about climate change and, you know, on a DNO policy, it's like, well, are we protected from, from climate change claims? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by climate change claim. You know, it's like, if it's that it, I have to see the allegations in a complaint and compare it to the insuring agreement. So it's hard to just, um, you know, give you any type of guarantee on something that really hasn't happened yet, somehow dealing with climate change um, in some way. But yeah. these are the type of things that, uh, you know, company CEOs and, and people these companies worry about because they're reading and, you know, there's a lot on the internet. Um, so you're dealing with some, some very nervous insureds. And I, I think COVID probably, you know, ignited some, um, worry with that too, just because of all those business interruption claims that no one had anticipated or expect, expected to be related to, you know, a, a illness like that, that I think now people are a little more hyper about what's in their insurance policies when they have, probably hadn't thought about it that much before. Yeah. The business interruption is, is, you know, those are just really interesting. Um, and um, I know it's really kind of trending for the insurers on those and, you know, uh, there's just a lot riding where usually you've got, um, uh, you know, a, a claim where if the, the decision goes one way or another, it can affect your uh, insured. Um, and in our case, in the, with the insurance company professional liability, uh, affect their insured. But a decision here affects just thousands of cases. Yeah. It seems like every restaurant, you know, went ahead and filed the business interruption claim. And it's such an interesting argument over the physical damage. Uh, you know, when you walk through that first, you have to uh, have a finding of coverage. You have to meet the coverage requirements, and then you have to look at the exclusions. Um, and uh, sometimes even with the lawyers, it's, uh, you know, 
it's hard for them to wrap their heads around. It's like, well, there's not a virus exclusion in this policy. It's like, yeah, but you don't have coverage in the first place because there was no physical damage. And you're talking about uh, the complaints and we have some are you know, hundreds of pages about, you know, it's a droplet, uh, uh, you know, physical damage, a droplet on a table. And it's like, well, show me the droplet, you know. And I saw an argument the other day where the lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer, um, is before the Wisconsin Supreme Court and he was trying, he said, well, you know, if you uh, have a restaurant and there's a cat urine stain, that's physical damage. You have to come in and you have to get that taken care of. And he was saying, well, this is the same thing. And the, the justices weren't buying. They're like, well, no, no, it's not. Cause that's a, the property's damage. You can see this is where the problem is. Yeah. Uh, you can't do that with these, um, these droplet you know, you're saying, well, we know they're closed down because there's a virus in here. And it's like, well, no, maybe not. They're preventing, they don't want virus to get in here. And your place isn't physically damaged. Once the, uh, you know, state lifts the closure, you're good to go again. It's not yeah. like we have to come in here and, you know, rip out your bar or your floors. So those are tough arguments. So very interesting. Those are the type of things, you know, when you get into the claim side that you don't really think you're going to, you know, get into seeing complaints with like yeah. micro, you know, pictures of a, uh, a virus droplet under the microscope that it's like, they really threw in everything, but um, not sure those are going too far, but it's been very interesting uh, handling yeah. those claims as well. Yeah. It, like it added a new, um, like a new, a new thing to the mundane, you know, like, oh, just, yeah. you might have been getting a little comfortable. Let's just, let's throw this in here. So, yeah. But there's always <laughs> something new, you know, and it's hard as an, uh, on the underwriting side and the claim side, predicting like kind of what's coming, what's coming next um, and how your decisions um, uh, can impact that depending like cyber is another one, you know, uh, people jumped into cyber and I remember thinking, how are they pricing it? Because it's so new and we don't, you know, you're, with, you know, now with, even with EPOI, as long as it's been around or, you know, any type of malpractice, you can look back at history. Um, but with cyber, you just, it was just a wild guess. They were throwing pricing out there. And of course, now the price on site for cyber coverage is going up um, a lot because um, they think they, you know, kind of underpriced it with all the, the stuff going on and all the different ways that you can be impacted by cyber. So, so you know, every day there's something different, something new, um, you know, whether you're on the claim side or the underwriting side. So it's a lot more interesting than I ever thought as a career, you <laughs> right. know, and it's been a great career and, and you know, uh, I've just been really lucky in it, but it's, I was kind of like um, everyone else who didn't have insurance people in the family, you either, you kind of just fall into it um you know unless it's a family business um but i think once uh people get into it they realize it's a lot more interesting than they they think uh, and one of the real fun things just been working with younger people um when we interview them and get them on board and yeah. and kind of try and get them excited about it uh, where i am now we were really lucky when all these changes happened at the end of the um the year last year we got two um people on board. Uh, one had an uh, uh, educational background. A lot of schools now have insurance majors, yeah. which is a great thing for the yeah. industry because um, these kids come out already educated and ready to go. And um, our other uh, person had um, background in really tough trucking claims, uh, but neither really had professional liability experience. So getting them into these claims and on board 
has been a lot of a lot of fun, and um, it's really made the job a lot more enjoyable having that type of um, help on board and, and a great team to work with. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's been the fun part when you're asking before about the difference between the law firm. And I like law firms. Uh, and I think, you know, when people say, um, you know, uh, is a law firm a good place to work? Or, you know, was your firm, was this a good firm? It just really depends. I mean, it can be a wonderful yeah. place or it could be miserable. It's a little bit your attitude and, and luck of the draw and who you work for and yeah. your timing. So it's really hard to tell people, um, you know, what's the better way to go or, you know, if a certain firm is a good place to work or not. Um, but um, I really like the team aspect of working at the company. Um, and it's a, I never had that feeling, at least, I don't know about your firms, Megan, but ours was a little bit, you're kind of on your own. It was go out there and do your hours and find your clients. And um, it was even a little bit of, um, you know, a little backstabbing and everyone trying to get ahead, especially on the, on the associate. I mean, funny things would happen. Like, uh, you know, a partner would come, like I was saying, they'd give you these motions to argue whether they were, you know, objections to interrogs or whatever. Um, the partner would say, there was one where he said, you know, I need you to, told my friend, I need you to argue this uh, motion. I need you to win. You cannot lose. We need to win this motion. And it was a loser. So he went to another friend of ours and said, um, oh, I've got a conflict. Can you run over and argue this motion? He didn't tell me anything about having to win. So of course, my friend innocently goes over and we were newer and he you know, argues and he loses, of course. And then the partner you know, blows his top and he's like, <laughs> one, why did we lose? And two, I gave it to you. Why is he doing it? And it's just, yeah. but that's the kind of stuff that you, you had to be watching yourself uh, at the law firm. And, you know, I never felt like that too much at an insurance company. It's kind of like, we're all a little more, we're all in this together as a team and we either rise or fall as a team. I remember though, being a, like a younger associate and having not being outwardly competitive, but you would be like, well, why, why did she get that case? Why didn't I get mm -hmm. that case? Do they not like me? Do they, and, and then you get in your head about it. Like, well, you know, that's, that's a really big high exposure case. Like, do they not think I can handle the high exposure? case? Why did I get this little case? And like, or, or like worrying about who you're getting work from, like which partners oh, yeah. and, 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 and like, you would be having, I would just remember having conversations with like, with, you know, another associate and like, it would be friendly, but then in my head, you're like, well, like your, your, your gears are going like why, why they got this and what they're talking, you know, and it's still competitive at its like core. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then, you know, um, you're right. And I was never like very well tuned into that. You know, I was, you know, took everyone at their best. So we, we'd, uh, I'd have situations where you'd be just sitting in your office and one of the, you know, more senior associates would drop in and say, well, what are you working on? And, you know, I was like, oh, I got this interesting new case from this partner and, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. And, you know, you get uh, a few days later, that note from the partner, Hey, could you transfer this over to Mike? Um, <laughs> and of course, once you told him, he went back and said, Oh, I, I saw Dale's working on this. I just did one of those, you know, kind of the same thing. So I've got the, the yeah. briefs, everything already. And it went on, it was just, you know, everyone was fighting for the hours and, and, um, yeah. and so it took me a while to figure out, it's like, Oh, I just can't, you know, I have to be a little more, you know, tuned in and uh, a little less naive when someone comes in and is making an innocent conversation. It just was never, uh, that was never real comfortable. But to me, I always kind of have to be, you know, uh, have my radar up and, and like you said, wondering what the real motive for someone dropping in and talking yeah. to me is.
Yeah, and also like a FaceTime thing, I remember being a big deal, like, oh, well, so-and-so gets in at, you know, at 7.45 and they, they stay, you know, late. And I, I don't know if that's ever going to change, you know, like yeah. I, I obviously don't, I think, well, I think COVID probably changed a lot of that because FaceTime isn't a thing, but, you know, that like idea that you need to just always be around and be available and like put the firm before like family and things like that. I, I, you know, I, my whole mindset changed as soon as I had kids. Cause I was like, well, you know what, now I'm not, I can't stay here to compete with, you know, Joe and Mary anymore. Like I, I have to go pick up my kid from daycare. And I think that actually was very helpful for me to pull out of that, um, that kind of that inherently competitive FaceTime thing that was going on. Yeah. And I don't know if it's gotten, gotten better, especially now with, you know, more work from home. Yes. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, back in the day when I was working, you needed to show up in the office and you needed to show up on, on weekends. Not that everybody did. I remember the senior partner at my firm, you know, sometimes it just on Saturday, you know, it was an 85 person firm and I'd be there and he'd be there. And he'd say, well, Dale, I guess we're so slow and disorganized that we just can't get our work done during the week. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, but, yeah, it was very much more formal. There's one, the firm I clerked at, um, I remember someone asked uh, if we could have casual days, if they could give us just, oh, could, yeah. could we have a, a, a casual day? And the partner said, um, I'll give you two casual days, Saturday and Sunday. So it was definitely, you know, you're expected to, to be, you weren't supposed to leave before the partner left. We'd all yep. tell each other, is he gone? Is he gone? You know, and as soon as the partner left, everyone would go, out. people would get creative. Some people would, you know, you'd try leaving a light on or leave back and you know, leave your computer on yes. or, you know, they caught on to that pretty quickly. And, and well, but yeah. Yeah, those are all, now you look back at it, it's kind of, kind of fun. I remember um, things that would go on, like when we had a, a bunch of these associates on the medical team and they were their own little group and, and they worked hard, you know, in the other cases, but they like to go out and have their fun. They like to go to the health club and shopping. And so one of them, uh, the associates tells me, oh, could you go um, over and just file this, you know, this motion, step up for this motion and get a date. So uh, I step up for the motion. So I'm here for so-and-so's on this case and here to get a date, you know, to, to argue these objections to interrogatories. And the, the judge says, you want a date? I'll give you a date today. <laughs> Oh, we're arguing so and I, I didn't even you know I didn't even look at him I, I'm just thinking I'm going to file and you know I just you know you think quick and you're like um, well I object to number four like, what's your objection counsel oh it's it's overbroad you know all right noted I object I had no I had never had never even looked at it and so I think I got like four or five of them granted just saying you know oh it's irrelevant um what's your objection number 11 irrelevant you know and they're like, all right granted and I'm like so I took her back. I said, you know, when I went back to the person whose file it was, I was like, you know, the argument was today. <laughs> so I said, well, we got four or five of them, you know, our objections granted. But next time, at least give me a heads up that I'm yeah. going into an argument. At least you didn't say, I don't know, Your Honor, this isn't my file. <laughs> oh, I tell you, that was the, you knew better. You knew better. Yeah. I had a um, professor uh, who taught us trial advocacy, and he was a federal judge district court judge, nicest guy, you know, always great professor. And I remember I ended up having a case in his courtroom later on. And um, I was sitting there and someone stepped up and said, just that, Megan. Oh, uh, you know, I'm here for so-and-so and this isn't my file. And I, the guy, just, <laughs> he, he got rich. He, he had her in tears. He was yeah. just 
scream it. It's like you never step up when you're not ready. You never come into court unprepared. And he's like, we're going to argue. And she's like, I can't. I don't know. And he's like, well, you should. You stepped in front of me not knowing your case. We're going to argue. And oh, it was painful. It was painful to watch. So I learned my lesson. I'm like, oh, boy, I am never again walking into court unless I know what I'm holding. Yeah, that's like one of the scenarios that, you know, there's always that chatter in the courtroom and that's when everything goes silent. (laughs) It went silent. The hush, it went. And it was a big old federal courtroom and full and it went dead. I just felt, you just feel so bad. Yeah, it was an I'll never forget that. And it was even worse for me because I was like, this is a mild mannered guy. And he's, I I need to see someone who's volatile, you know? Well, you feel bad, but then you're also like, why'd you say that stupid? Like... (laughs) Like you're better off arguing it poorly than saying that because now like all focus is on you. <laughs> yeah. You have to argue something. The judges were great. I do miss, you know, sometimes you miss going into court, especially I was mostly in chancery court, but my favorite judge, uh, judge Foreman in Chicago. And he always, he did the same thing. You'd go in on coverage and he'd say, well, counsel, you know, I got your motion and I read over your policy. In fact, he said, I spent a good part of the weekend, you can see, and he'd hold it up and it would have, you know, all the little post-its and everything. And he'd say, you know what? I don't understand it. <laughs> and he'd say, maybe, um, maybe I'm just not that smart, you know, and I don't understand your policy. Or maybe your policy is ambiguous. And he'd say, which one do you think it is? So my choice is telling the judge he's not very smart. <laughs> Or telling them my policy is ambiguous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to talk around yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, and he loved doing that, especially, you know, to the younger associates, just seeing how we were going to answer. Yeah, so you don't, like, poop your pants. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Dale, we're pretty much out of time, but I, I wanted to wrap this up um, with one last question, though, because, you I mean, you've had such an awesome career, and I could sit here and talk, like, shop and war stories with you know, practice and forever. I love it. Um, but if you were to go back and, you know, give your younger self some, a piece of advice, what would it be? I think the, the biggest piece of advice would be to just be um, less uh, anxious and nervous about everything and just enjoy it more. Cause like I said, we're looking back at it now and laughing, but you know, <laughs> these were, it wasn't very funny at the time. And no. it was, um, it was, uh, um, difficult it was stressful um you know uh, whether it was on the uh certainly on the law firm side but also you know on the the company side um but you know besides that the one thing people say a lot is that you make a lot of sacrifices i was on the road all the time and you know the kids grow up you've got kids they grow up so fast and and the little hazy you know them growing up i just you know they just were going from uh grade to grade. So um, yeah. it would have been, I, I could say, you know, it'd been nice to spend more time at home with the kids growing up in that, but really you, you have to do what you, you have to do. Um, but you have to make sure that um, when you are home and you're not in the office that, uh, you know, you really maximize the, the time more. Um, and so uh, probably um, I think I did maximize the time, but maybe just, um, try and focus a little more on the time when you are home um, on a lot of the family things. Uh, 
because it's always a tough pull, you know, working in a law firm. Um, it's hard when you get a case going. It's just uh, you're needed at home and you're needed at, at, at work. And it can be a real um, tough, uh, you know, decision where to, to put the time in because yeah. both of them require a lot of time. But um, just enjoy the, the career because uh, it goes quick. Um, and enjoy the people you work with and, yeah. and, and you always have to, you know, you have to laugh, you know, about things. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, and that, I, I like your point though, about like taking it a little less, not less seriously, but you know, I, I, cause looking back, I remember I could still feel those feelings, the anxiousness and, mm-hmm. you know, the worry. And now I'm looking back and like, what was I so worried about? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know what I was worried about. I was new. You don't want to mess up. Like you want, you know, you want to do a good job, but some things like, you know, you know, we're out of your hands. You can argue emotion to the best of your ability um, and you can be right, but the judge might think you're wrong and they might deny yeah. it. I mean, uh, some things are just out of, out of your hands and you can't, you know, get overly, you know, bent out of shape about, making sure it goes your way all you can do is do your best argue your points and sometimes judges don't agree unfortunately (laughs) i I try and tell you know the younger people it's you know when when something doesn't go quite right it's you know um that we can we can fix it i said you know i went into insurance uh in law instead of medicine because in medicine if you really mess up a lot of times it can't be fixed here. You know, most <laughs> things, that's what I loved about, you know, the, the law, usually it's like, all right, you messed up. You got 30 days, <laughs> you got 30 yes. days to correct it um, and get it refiled. So uh, yeah. that's been a great, it's been a great career. And, and like you said, I could talk about it all day. And, and it's good to find someone who's willing to talk insurance <laughs> with you because not everybody wants to. No, I, I, I think a lot of people don't totally understand what we, what we do either. Like my mom one time said, like I was an ambulance chaser. I was like, no mom, that's not even close to what I do. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's close in a way, but I'm like, stop going, stop going saying that. But she doesn't understand the insurance aspect of it either. Like she just, she's just my mom. She doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah. It's the same with insurance. Everyone thinks you're, you're going to sell them life insurance. You know, they mostly yeah. think insurance agents. So yeah, it can be hard for uh, civilians. And I don't blame them though, because I didn't get it either. I didn't get it through mm-hmm. law school. I barely got it when I started working. I was like, Oh wait, like, wait, the insurance, like we're working for an insurance company. Like it, it's confusing. <laughs> and no one explained it to me in law school. Like no one said that they just said insurance defense. And yeah. no one really explained what that meant. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, you know, I worked, we, a uh, big part of our firm was medical malpractice defense. And sometimes coverage issues would come up. And I talked to, you know, senior partners who didn't get the coverage part at all. You know, they when they're like, well, there's no coverage here. They went right to defense. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, wait, there's a big coverage issue. And it was amazing that, because yeah, you just assume these guys know everything. They're senior partners of the firm. And they'd be like, they didn't know the way around insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dale, thank you so much for, for joining, joining me. I think I could, I could chat with you forever on this, but I do try to keep these under an hour. Cause I think I lose people if we, we go over it. Well, we do go a little, a little over an hour, but that's it. <laughs> they went fast. I know it always goes fast. It goes, it always, it goes super fast, but thanks so much for, for coming on and for everyone listening out there. Um, if you like what you hear, please like, and subscribe to the defense never rest on Apple podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at, uh, the defense never rest podcast. Mm-hmm.